is Monday the 13th of August, 1860. In Victorian England, the slums are squalid and overcrowded. The workhouses are packed and the temperance movement is in full swing. It is a warm summer's evening as Mary Emsley makes her way home from Bethnal Green to Mile End. At 70 years old, she's a woman set in her ways and insists on collecting rent herself from the multitude of properties she owns. She threads her way through the narrow alleys of the courts underneath overhanging washing lines strung between three-storey houses packed from cellar to rafter with poor families. Childless herself, it's difficult to imagine living with all that noise and chaos. She sidesteps through the ashes and piles of refuse thrown into the street and avoids the filthy water that pools with a foul stench. These are the London slums of which philosopher Frederick Engels said, Here lives the poorest of the poor. Here the worst paid workers rub shoulders with thieves, rogues and prostitutes. On the corner, there's a public house where, no doubt, a lot of the rent owed her will be wasted. Mary feels hot under her bonnet and her feet ache, but she can't help herself. It's easy to imagine the feeling of power and satisfaction she gets when demanding her payment. But sometimes, the tenants can't pay. Some people might take pity on them, but not Mary. Her late husband wouldn't have taken pity on them. After the Crimean War, many small builders continually mortgaged their humble brick buildings and used the capital to construct more and made considerable fortunes. As Arthur Conan Doyle later said, amongst these astute speculators, there was one John Elmsley, who, dying, left his numerous houses and various interests to his widow, Mary. Mary perhaps thinks of her husband, how he strived to earn the money to build those houses, and then the people who live there can't even be bothered to get a job. When tenants can't pay, Mary gives them a week to find the money. That's plenty of time. And if they can't find it, well, that's their problem. She knows what people think about her, the things they say, friendless, stingy, eccentric, paranoid. It's been nearly 15 years since Charles Dickens published his book, A Christmas Carol, and she's heard some of the kids call her Scrooge. Let them think what they like. Exhausted laborers and dock workers pass her, making their way home after a long day. She finally reaches her home at 9 Grove Road, Mile End. Automatically, she bars the door behind her. Maybe she is a little paranoid, but who wouldn't be? A widow with money, living alone, childless and no servants, Mary has to rely on herself. Her neighbours like to think she sits in at night and counts her money by candlelight. Sometimes she does. Her muscles aching from her long day, Mary climbs the stairs to the top floor of her house, excited by her next venture. Wallpaper. She opens the front room door to see rolls and rolls of it, a large consignment that she has bought to sell on for profit. Now she just has to find the buyers. Twenty years ago, when wallpaper was made by hand, 
It was too expensive for most people, but now it goes for as little as a farthing a yard and has become fashionable. Mary has advertised the paper for sale in the local press and is expecting callers. She picks some up and feels the quality of the paper, the curve of the roll. She hears a knock at the door and smiles to herself. There's money to be made. But for a woman usually so careful about who she invites into her home, Mary Emsley is about to cast caution to the wind, open her front door and invite danger in. I'm John Hopkins and welcome to Scotland Yard Confidential, the show where we delve into the files of London's legendary criminal investigation department. You'll be right there alongside investigators as they search for clues, interrogate suspects and sort the truth from the lies. There will be twists and turns along the way. Sometimes the trail will run cold. Sometimes it will be a race against time. We'll rub shoulders with notorious gangsters, sit down with informants, and come face to face with cold-blooded murderers as we follow in the footsteps of some of the greatest detectives in history. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. From your morning podcast to your afternoon playlist, State Farm knows you personalize your entire day. And that's why State Farm helps you personalize your insurance with the State Farm Personal Price Plan. It offers coverage options that help protect what you care about most at an affordable price just for you. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices vary by state. Options selected by customer. Availability and eligibility may vary. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. It's Friday the 17th of August, 1860. Mary's neighbours haven't seen her for a few days, and their concern grows. The miserly businesswoman is a curiosity to those who live nearby, but still, they hope no harm has come to her. Mary's neighbour, who lives directly opposite her, says she saw her on Monday evening between 7 and 8pm at her window. But at midnight, Mary's shutters were still open, which was remarkable because Mary was in the strict habit of closing them at dusk. Another neighbour also noticed that the shutters were open and lights were lit late into the night. 
They know Mary is overly cautious about the security of her house. In fact, she tends not to open the front door, but instead will call down to visitors from her first floor window. She rarely lets people in. A number of people pass by 9 Grove Street between the 13th and 16th of August. Some of the rent collectors who work for her, a builder who intends to buy wallpaper, and the son of Walter Ems, a local cobbler sent by his father for some brass taps, but all to no avail. Besides being a cobbler, Walter Ems is Mary's chief rent collector. When his son returns and says there was no reply, Ems contacts Mary's solicitor, and together with a police constable, they meet up at her house. They're an odd group. Ems in his shabby brown work clothes, Rose, the solicitor, in his frock coat and shiny top hat, and Constable Dillon, in his officer's uniform with bright buttons down his chest. Rose knocks loudly on the front door. Ems looks up as if expecting Mary to respond from her usual place at the first floor window. The house is silent. Rose sends Dylan around the back of the house and instructs him to climb over the garden wall to see if there's a way in. Dylan shouts that the back door is open, so Rose and Ems join him and they make their way in. Ems, having knowledge of the house, leads the way. The ground floor is empty. The men make their way up the stairs, the creaking of the wood and their subdued whispers the only noises. Is it possible Mary Emsley has gone away on a trip? But as they climb the stairs to the second floor, a foul and unmistakable smell hits them, and they know something is very wrong. The three men share a concerned look. As they climb higher, the nauseating stench intensifies. Ems reaches the top of the stairs first and stops still. In a doorway, the corpse of Mary Emsley lies in an explosion of her own blood. Her lank limbs are asprawl, her skirts raised in an unseemly manner, rolls of wallpaper under her arms. The men know they will never be able to rid their minds of the horrific image before them. Mary's face is greenish in hue, but worse still is the sight of maggots writhing in and around the lurid crater in her skull. Horrified and nauseous, the men cover their mouths. Rose immediately sends for Dr. Gill, although it is clearly too late to help Mary Emsley now. While they wait, Constable Dillon begins to look for clues. A great quantity of blood is splashed around the floor and walls near the body. In the hallway, he discovers a bloody imprint of a boot ingrained into the wood of the floorboards. Dr. Gill arrives quickly and examines the body. He sees a large opening in the back of the skull, extending deeply into the brain, the result of repeated blows. There are other injuries to the head and face. He also notes a smear of blood on the underpart of Mary's petticoat, which has been drawn over her head. It looks to him as if something had been wiped on it. The murder weapon, maybe? So universally disliked is Mary Emsley that suspicion may fall on almost anybody who knew her. She's very wealthy, yet miserly. 
She owns huge swathes of property, could afford every luxury, and yet she lives simply without servants. She has no children who will benefit from her inheritance, and often remarks that she would sooner leave her considerable wealth to create almshouses than to her various kin. She ejects tenants regularly and without mercy for falling behind on rent. There's no sign of a break-in, and nothing of value seems to be missing from her house. So who killed Mary Emsley? And why? The police don't know where to start. One of the officers observes that some hundreds of the most depraved and lowest class have frequently threatened her. Mr. Rose believes a reward could encourage someone to divulge information that might solve the crime. He puts forward 200 pounds for information that leads to a conviction. To this, the government add a further 100 pounds. This is a huge amount, over 16 times what a tradesman might earn in a year. But might this tempting reward lead to someone making a false claim against an innocent man? One of the first people to come forward is James Mullins, a plasterer in his late 50s who is employed by Mary Emsley as an odd job man to help her repair multiple properties. He's a man with an unusual history. In his 20s, Mullins was recruited into the newly formed police force in England before serving as a spy in Ireland. He infiltrated a group of violent nationalists and fed information back to the British government when the cell found out his true identity, they attempted to kill him before he escaped to England. After demotion and injury, Mullins turned to petty crime and served six years in Dartmoor Prison. After his incarceration, he came to work for Mary Emsley. On Saturday the 8th of September at six o'clock in the evening, there's a knock at the home of Sergeant Richard Tanner of Scotland Yard. His family are seated at the table, about to eat their evening meal. Tanner answers the door to find James Mullins twisting his cap in his hands, glancing up and down the street. Mullins says, I'm come to give you some information, Sergeant Tanner. I've had my suspicions about the man who committed the murder and I've been watching him. Tanner considers the man standing on his doorstep. He knows he once worked for the police but he also knows he once served a prison sentence. Is he trustworthy? He says, before you go any farther, Mullins, who is it? Mullins replies, Ems. Sergeant Tanner nods and lets Mullins into his house to talk. Mullins explains that Ems lived in a small rundown house in a field owned by Mary Emsley. He tells Tanner, this morning, I went to Emsley's Brickfield at five o'clock and I remained there watching Ems pretending to be picking herbs. And between eight o'clock and nine o'clock, I saw Ems come out of his house and go to a ruined cottage about 50 yards away. He appeared to be looking about him and he had a small parcel in his hand about the size of a pint pot. He went inside, remained about two minutes, came out again without the parcel and went indoors. Mullins believes he has hidden evidence of the murder. Perhaps 
the murder weapon itself. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. So you need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. And it needs to say, I'm a thoughtful person, and I appreciate you, and I know exactly what you like, all at the same time. Well, Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life, like the pickleballer, the jazz fan, or the pasta lover. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. Whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Sergeant Tanner immediately sends word to his superior at Scotland Yard, Inspector Stephen Thornton. The next day at noon, Inspector Thornton... Sergeant Tanner and another sergeant by the name of Thomas take a horse-drawn cab to Ems Cottage. Ems is at home with his wife and children. The police question him before searching the house and then searching the ruined cottage which is being used as a shed. They find nothing. Suddenly, Mullins appears in the brickfield. Looking agitated, he says, I tell you, he is concealing some of the plunder which he has stolen. Does he mean that Ems killed Mary Emsley and then stole some of her belongings? He continues, You have not half-searched the place. Come, I will show you where I think it is put. Mullins directs them to a slab of stone placed against a wall in the shed. Sergeant Tanner moves the slab and beneath it finds a parcel wrapped in paper tied with apron string. The police officers step in to take a closer look, as Mullins stands anxiously nearby. Inside is another package, this one wrapped with cobbler's waxed string. Inspector Thornton nods, and Tanner carefully opens it. Inside they find four silver spoons, two magnifying glasses, several documents, and a cheque for £10 made out to Mrs Mary Emsley dated the 14th of August, 1860. Walter Ems has just become their main suspect. Have you found anything? Mullins asks as he rubs his hand together. Have you found any bloody money? Tanner says, Sergeant Thomas has found something. Then the police officer notices Mullins' boots. They are tied with the same string as the parcel. Tanner catches Inspector Thornton's eye and nods towards the makeshift laces. Walter Ems is brought out to the shed and shown the findings. He senses immediately that he's in trouble. He cries out, Good God, this is a fine plot. How can he not look guilty when he has Mary Emsley's possessions in his shed? 
Take him to Arbor Square Station, commands Inspector Thornton. The two sergeants take Ems by the arms. Anyone could have placed that there, he says, as he is taken to the waiting carriage. As the carriage drives off, Mullin says to Thornton, I'm clever at these matters. But his smile instantly vanishes when Inspector Thornton arrests him too. In shock, Mullin says, Is this the way I am to be served after giving you information? If you are innocent, no harm will befall you, Inspector Thornton replies. But Mullins has no idea of the terrible fate that lies in store for him, innocent or not. This dramatic twist, accuser becoming the accused, causes huge public excitement, particularly when Walter Ems is released without charge. Mullins' alibi has not convinced the police. He claims that he was with his two sons on the night of the murder, even sleeping in the same room as them. Public opinion turns against Mullins. As Arthur Conan Doyle later writes in his article, The Debatable Case of Mrs. Emsley, the utmost abhorrence was everywhere expressed against this man who was charged not only with a very cold-blooded murder, but with a deliberate attempt to saddle another man with the guilt in the hope of receiving the reward. The police believe they have a strong case against Mullins. During a search of his lodgings, officers find paper and string that are the same as those used in the parcel in M's shed and in Mullins' boots. On his mantelpiece, they find cobbler's wax, which was also found on the parcel. Had Mullins bought it to cast suspicion on the innocent cobbler M's? They find a spoon which looks very much like the spoons taken from Mary Emsley. A boot is found in a dust hole with human hair stuck to the sole and what looks like blood. And they find a hammer, a plasterous hammer. Is this the murder weapon? On Monday the 22nd of October 1860, Mullins appears at the Old Bailey on the charge of murder. Police produce the cut-out floorboard, on which clearly shows a bloodied boot print. They compare the print to the boot found in Mullins' house and claim it is an exact match. When the court is shown the hammer, Inspector Thornton says, I have seen the wounds that caused the death of the unfortunate Mrs. Emsley, and I have no hesitation in saying that such wounds were inflicted by some instrument similar to the hammer found at Mullins' house. It's damning evidence. And Mullins doesn't help his case when he's caught lying on the stand. Sergeant Thomas tells the court, no one had better opportunity, as Mullins was in the habit of taking small sums of money and would be admitted by Mrs. Emsley at any time. Mullins denies this. He claims that Ems is the only man to whom Mary Emsley would open her door. Wouldn't she open it to you? The prosecutor asks him. No, replies Mullins. She would have called to me from the window. But neighbours know this to be untrue and testify against him. Elizabeth George, a charwoman who works for Mary Emsley on Saturdays, testifies that she saw Mullins bring wallpaper to the house on the Saturday before the murder, 
and says the mayor had told him to take it to the upstairs room where the murder later occurred. Others swear to have seen Mullins near the crime scene at the time of the murder. One of them, Mrs. Fuke, tells the court that Mullins said Mary Emsley deserved everything that was coming to her. He told me, she says, that it was a great pity that such a miserable old wretch should be allowed to live. The observers in court gasp in outrage. But in Mullins' defence, many of the claims that he was seen nearby are confused, inaccurate, or contradict one another. As for the hair on the boots, human hair is often used in plastering to give strength to the plaster and prevent shrinkage. With forensic science being in its infancy, there's no way to prove if the blood on the boot is human or not. Furthermore, there is no blood on the plastering hammer. And surely, a plasterer cannot be blamed for having an essential tool of his trade. But the damage is already done. The crowd in the public gallery jeer every time Mullins opens his mouth. If they didn't think he was guilty before, then the lie about Mary Emsley not letting him into the house has now convinced them he is. The judge, however, remains rational. He throws out evidence from those who testified that they saw Mullins on the night of the murder looking crazed and haunted as merely idle dreaming. He also makes it clear that he thinks the imprint of blood on the wooden floorboard was not caused by Mullins. The boot print is the wrong size. The judge says that the case against Mullins comes down to two things. Whether the jury believes his alibi and what his motivation was for trying to blame Ems as the killer. It takes the jury just three hours to determine that James Mullins is guilty of the brutal murder of Mrs. Mary Emsley. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Before sentencing, the judge tells Mullins that if he can somehow show that he is innocent, even at this point, that every attempt will be made to exonerate him. Mullins remains silent. Much of the evidence against Mullins is circumstantial, and even the judge thinks the case has not been fully examined. But he accepts the jury's decision, dons his black cap, and sentences Mullins to death. Of this, Arthur Conan Doyle later says, to allude to the possibility of a man's innocence and at the same time to condemn him to be hanged strikes the lay mind as being a rather barbarous and illogical proceeding. 
Nevertheless, Mullins is headed for the gallows. As he waits, he writes a letter to his son from his prison cell. Dear son, the head that wields the pen that writes this note will be motionless and stiff. This brain, thy father's brain, will cease to think and the heart will cease to beat ere you read these last lines. The last hour that I can live on earth has come. Farewell, farewell. Pray for your unhappy father, James Mullins. It is eight o'clock on the morning of November the 19th, 1860. It is dark and cold. The gaslights in the street are being extinguished as the sun rises. The bells of nearby St. Sepulchre ring out the hour of execution. The old, grim gallows of Newgate Prison have been rolled out onto the courtyard and await the next victim. The case of the murder at Mile End has caught the country's imagination and a hastily created waxwork of Mullins is now a star attraction in Madame Tussaud's Chamber of Horrors. A crowd of 30,000 people have gathered outside Newgate Prison to see the man himself in the flesh before it's too late. The neighbouring houses are thronged, groups of faces at the windows, even the streets around the prison where there is no vantage point are crowded to excess. They are baying for Mullins' execution, an informer, perjurer, thief and murderer. Many people have travelled over from Ireland to see the end of a detestable spy and a traitor to his own countrymen. As a final peal rings out, Mullins appears and makes his way across the courtyard, his face ashen, his expression stunned. With him are Callcraft, the hangman, and the Reverend O'Callaghan, Mullins' confessor. Mullins makes his way up the ladder, unsupported. The priest and the hangman join him on the gallows platform. Mullins is visibly shaking. The crowd is quiet, except for a few shouts of Bravo Mullins and Hurrah Mullins. The Monmouth Merlin newspaper reports the crowd to be much more orderly and decorous than is usual on such occasions. Is this because they doubt his guilt or because he has garnered such hatred? The condemned man makes no speech. Instead, he stands under the beam and for a minute he bows his head in prayer with the priest, the last words he will ever speak. They shake hands and the Reverend leaves. Colecraft adjusts the rope around Mullins' neck and also shakes hands with him. The executioner does his job. The drop falls heavily. A shudder runs through the crowd and in an instant, James Mullins is dead. There is a moment of silence then a wild yell pierces the air and the crowd explodes with excitement. But the story does not end there. Just before he was executed, Mullins handed an extraordinary statement to the sheriff. I, James Mullins, do make the following true statement against the charge of murder, the crime and charge of which I have been found guilty through the most false and gross perjury 
that has ever been given in a court of justice. He claims in front of God and the public that his alibi is true. He spent the whole evening and night with his two sons. He says witnesses swore their falsehoods against me in the hope of obtaining money, the produce of my blood, and they have caused my poor wife to be made a widow and my poor children fatherless. He goes on to claim that the boots found in the parlour belonged to a man named Mahoney, who had placed it there before Mullins and his family moved into the house. And although he came forward to the police, it was too late. Finally, Mullins writes, The truth would not do. The truth was not believed. My life has been taken away by the most gross and false evidences, all through the hopes of getting money. I say that they have no right to any part of the reward, and I hope they will get none of it. He concludes with a shocking statement, I believe Ems to be innocent of the murder of Mrs. Emsley. So if Marlins claimed to be not guilty, and he believed Ems to also be innocent, then who killed Mary Emsley? The perplexing case drew the attention of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of the world's greatest sleuth, Sherlock Holmes. Even though the crime happened when the writer was only one year old, such was the fascination with the case that 40 years later, Conan Doyle wrote an article called The Debatable Case of Mrs. Emsley, which was published in 1901 in The Strand magazine. In it, he says... It is true that the cumulative force of the evidence against Mullins was very strong, but the evidence was all circumstantial and therefore possible to twist to another meaning. Conan Doyle went to his grave, wondering if the wrong man had been hanged for the crime. He felt there was insufficient evidence to condemn or acquit Mullins and left open the possibility that it was someone else, a person or persons unknown. Taking over from where Conan Doyle left off more than a century later, the author Sinclair Mackay wrote a book titled The Mile End Murder, The Case Conan Doyle Couldn't Solve, in which he puts forward a possible theory. He suggests that it was actually a preacher, the Reverend Joseph Biggs, who murdered Mary Emsley. Biggs, a firebrand Presbyterian preacher, was the widow's closest male companion. Mackay says, practically every time they met, he would greet her by proposing marriage. She was fantastically wealthy, and she teased him endlessly about what she might leave him in her will. Discussing the savage brutality of the attack, Mackay says, if anyone was going to descend into a frenzy, it's not going to be the labourer who relies on her for work. It's going to be the man who has been stingingly rebuffed one too many times by this extraordinarily sharp-tongued old lady. This theory is based on testimony from one of the witnesses in the trial. Neighbour Caroline Barnes claimed she saw someone move in the top-floor window of Number 9 Grove Road in the early hours of the morning after the murder. Did Mary Emsley's killer stay with her body all night? Would it not have been more logical for the killer to have escaped under cover of darkness? Mackay says, Here was a killer who is not only crazy enough to kill an old lady in a kind of frenzy, 
but then stayed with her body all night long. There was one man who would actually stay with her in the darkness after having killed her to pray and see that she had been seen off properly. This, he claims, was most likely the Reverend Joseph Biggs. Mary Emsley was a woman whose greed and obsession with money led to many enemies in life. The truth is, it may never be known who killed her. It could have been one of hundreds of people across London who bore a grudge against her mean-spirited evictions, or it could have been a random attack on an old lady who lives alone. But whatever the truth, her miserliness did not warrant her horrific death. And if James Mullins was innocent, then someone got away with murder. Next time on Scotland Yard Confidential, it's Halloween, 1946. A woman's body is found by the roadside on Rootham Hill, a notable beauty spot in Kent. 47-year-old Dagmar Petrozavoski has been strangled, though the motive for her murder is unclear. Her body is fully clothed and there's no sign of sexual assault. Detective Chief Inspector Robert Fabian of Scotland Yard is called in to lead the investigation. Using a combination of methodical police work and inspired lateral thinking, Fabian follows a string of clues that lead him to an idyllic village in Cambridgeshire. Could a respectable family man with no criminal record really be Dagmar's murderer? Or is Fabian's prime suspect not who he seems to be? Scotland Yard Confidential is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boiro for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Series consultant, Roger Morris. Written by Sarah Moorhead. Hosted by me, John Hopkins. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound designed by Matthias Torres-Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mixmaster by Kian Ryan Morgan. Music by Oliver Bain and Dory McCauley.